When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know. Ask Katie anything. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. I am your host, licensed marriage and family therapist, Katie Morton. I am so glad that you're here. Today we have, I believe, 10 questions. Yes, a whole 10. And without further ado, we're going to jump right into them. I want to let you all know that if you're wanting to ask a question, I ask for them on the community tab of my podcast channel, not my main YouTube channel and my podcast channel. And I ask for them on the community tab on Sundays. So keep an eye out for those, maybe set a, like turn the notifications on. And I pick the ones with the most thumbs ups. And then the last one or two is just a randomly selected question. Now, question number one says, hey, Katie, I hope you're doing well. I am. I hope you're doing well. How do adults who suffered childhood emotional neglect, abuse, and parentification deal with being an adult, taking responsibility, and being self-reliant, things that are potentially triggering and throw you back into childhood patterns, right? So like, how do we deal with all of that? It feels like taking responsibility and being self-reliant was all I did as a kid, and I've had enough of it. As an adult, I just want to have fun and be free from responsibility, but I can't because, you know, work, adult relationships, etc. I'm so drained from trying to adult because it is so much like my childhood. Is there any way to not feel so trapped by being an adult, having responsibilities and being self-reliant? I love your podcast so much. Thank you for your hard work. Of course, of course. I'm glad it's helpful. It's a great question. We can feel like burnt out before we're even an adult because we've been adulting our whole lives. And my actual advice here is to find ways to still be able to do the childlike things. Now, I know you think, but I still have to be responsible to show up for work. Yeah, we do have to do those things. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is in your free time. Are there things that you wanted to do as a kid? Not just that feeling of being irresponsible or we might, you know, all the things that you're talking about, like the self-reliant, like having to do that ahead of time when we were little, and we shouldn't have had to, we can't go back in time and like make up for that. And we certainly cannot make up for all of those things in adulthood. We're going to have to grieve some of the loss of our childhood. Yes, I know that's hard. Yes, I know it's a shitty answer. But it's, it's unfortunately the truth, right? We're going to have to grieve the fact that we didn't get a childhood where we got to be irresponsible, and unreliable and you know, all the things that kids can you know, like footloose and fancy free for lack of a better term, right? We didn't get to do all of that. And so we're going to have to grieve the fact that we didn't get that. However, in our adulthood, through the wonderful healing practice of inner child work, we can get in touch with younger us through letters we write back and forth. Um, through There's like workshops and worksheets. I had an inner child workshop that I I did the live events August 12th and 19th, but you can access those recordings. Just go to my uh, my website, katiemorton.com and go into the shop. You'll find it there. You can purchase that. But through inner child work, we can get in touch with younger us 
listen to them, validate them, let them vent and be angry. And then adult us can do some things for child us. Like, for example, um, let's say I always wanted to go to Six Flags and ride the roller coasters, but because I had to be a responsible, you know, adult in my family, I never got to do that. Or I wanted to go to Disneyland or I always wanted to slip and slide or I always wanted to play the game Pretty Pretty Princess or whatever it could be, right? If we never were able to do those things because we were too busy being responsible and reliable and being an adult before we needed to be, we can offer those things to child us now. No, it's not exactly the same, but yes, it can be incredibly healing. So I just encourage you to to take an opportunity to do that. And part of it might be talking with your therapist to come up with some of the things that you want to do, because it might not be as obvious as the ones I mentioned. There might be bigger things at play here. Maybe we need to take vacation from work for like, let's say a four day weekend or something or a whole week off and be unreachable, turn our phone off, be a little irresponsible, right? We can plan for stuff like that. And yes, I know when it's planned, it's not as spontaneous. and It's not as like what it would have been like when we were a child. But like I said, we can't go back in time and, and change those things, but we can offer them up to the best of our ability now. Yes, I know that's hard work. Yes, I know it sucks. And I think that my hypothesis about you feeling kind of like, I'd assume very frustrated and exhausted, this kind of like irritability is because rightfully so, you're probably pretty angry about the fact that you were parentified and you probably never felt free to be angry. And also, if that doesn't ring true, it could be because you're burnt out, right? You've been an adult or adulting for so long that now as an adult, you're like, I am over it. This is, this is exa- I don't want to do this anymore, right? It's too much. And those are all okay feelings to feel. I want to give you permission to express those, whether that means that we, you know, punch a, I don't know, a boxing bag, we shout into a pillow, maybe we vent about it to a friend, or we journal about it and write it down. I want you to feel free to do whatever you need to do to get those emotions out. Give yourself time to grieve the loss of your childhood. And also taking the time to connect with younger you and be able to offer up some of those things to that little kid who wanted to have fun and goof around and, you know, do I don't know, do whatever it is that you wanted to do. Now, I know that that, que- that answer kind of sucks because it's, it's a lot of work. But trust me when I tell you that you're worth it and it does get better, okay? Now, there was a comment on this too. It said, good question. I'm adding on. Conversely, how do those of us who were scolded for not being good at responsible and self-reliant things and things that were done for them because the parents had no patience to deal with it? When I was asked for help, I tended to get the, you should know how to do that already. And what then it was done for me. Oh, you were never able to try things out for yourself. You had those like helicopter, well, not helicopter parents, but kind of. Since my former problems didn't go away, and I'm still neurodivergent as I was in my childhood, a lot of help on how to do things is triggering, as it feels a lot like how my parents were. Like, just do that. It's easy. You should be able to do it. Okay, interesting. Now, for this part, like this add-on question, The fact that we were never given the opportunity to be independent and to do things on our own, to try it out and to learn, we were like expected to know for some unknown reason. I think there's going to be a lot of inner child work that needs to be completed. And I know I keep talking about this. And I think part of it is because once I learn about something like in depth, like I've done a lot of research about somatic experiencing and now inner child work, I did a ton of trauma research for my book, Traumatized. When I've done these deep dives, then I see it everywhere because 
inner child work, I think is something we can all benefit from. We all had a child, an age of ourselves, a, a child era within our life where we didn't feel heard or understood, or things were so confusing, we didn't understand what was happening, right? And I feel like it's always beneficial to get in touch with that part of ourselves so that he or she or they can be heard from and actually listened to. Does that make sense? And if you hear anything, my dog Roxy's eating, um, you know, more power to her. Okay. So doing that inner child work will be incredibly healing, listening to child you. And I would encourage you to try to set up scenarios where you can learn how to do things if you can. I know there are going to be things because you said you're neurodivergent and you might need help to do things and that's completely fine. But we might want to spend some time if there are certain memories in childhood, it could be really healing for you to actually learn how to do those things on your own. If you feel able, again, all, you know, ability levels, but if your parents never let you, I don't even know, it could be something as simple as like putting the dishes away or making a bed. And I don't know your ability level. So I'm not saying simple as in like, you should be able to do this. I'm just saying like other things around the house that maybe they never let you do because you didn't quote know how to do it already or do it right. Um, if there are certain things that we can learn, I would encourage you to do the allow yourself to do those things. And then I really do think that there's just a lot of trauma work that's going to need to be done here because having a uh, parents be so abrasive and not allow for any independence is a form of abuse. I know we think of abuse as, you know, well, it's, this is emotional abuse, like you should know that already, like just so you know, but I know we think of abuse often as like physical abuse, sexual abuse, something outward, but someone talking poorly to us, <clears throat> making us feel stupid, calling us stupid, maybe that's abuse. And I think there's going to be a lot of inner child work so we can kind of correct some of those messages you heard as a child. Um, as well as, you know, obviously the trauma healing and that process. And that could be through talk therapy, EMDR, uh, schema therapy, parts work. There's a ton of different types of modalities when it comes to trauma treatments. So I don't want you to think if talk therapy doesn't work, it won't ever get better for you because it, it will. We just have to find the right type of treatment for us. And so, yeah, that's, I'm just making sure I answered all of your questions. Yeah. How do you, those were scolded, um, when you ask for help, you should know it already. Yeah, I think I answered it all. Let's move on to the final add-on. It says, as an add-on, this is exactly how I've been feeling. It's like you read my mind. I'm about to enter my first year of, of university away from a toxic family and especially traumatizing few months. How can I rest and recover while simultaneously learning to adult, manage finances and stresses, etc.? Thank you so much, Katie, for all that you do. Of course. I mean, it's funny the term we use like adult, like being an adult. You don't have to, in college, be fully adult. You get, I give you full permission to be childlike and slightly reckless as long as it's not harmful or dangerous and learn who you are. Learn boundaries and limitations to life. Learn about yourself. I found college to be incredibly trying, but also incredibly like growth filled for me. It was challenging in a lot of different ways, scholastically, as well as like financially doing that, uh, managing being away from home. Like I got homesick a couple times. It was, you know, and it's just, it's a, it's a new space and a new time for you. And I encourage you to, to lean into it and to 
talk with other people going through it too. That's the wonderful thing about going, for me, going away to college is you have roommates and suite mates and people in your dorm who are going through it as well. And as you get to know them and feel safe, you can share about how stresses you out or I didn't know anybody coming into this. It makes me kind of nervous or, you know, managing finances and blah, blah, it's a lot. You'll find your people who are going through it too. And I think that's a really healing way to kind of manage that big change because going to college is a huge adjustment it's a huge change we go from having parents around us making sure we're home at a certain time or at least my home at a certain time making dinner for us making sure that we're you know doing all the things and then you're on your own and even though you're 18 you're a quote-unquote adult we're not adults let's all be honest you you're like free falling a little bit and even as someone who's always been like I don't know like an old soul which is really just like someone who I never felt I, someone with anxiety. <laughs> um, I was a very responsible kid, but college still felt kind of scary to not have that like foundation, you know? Sorry, I think I got off topic, but um, how can you rest and recover? I think th- you'll find it to be, in my experience, pretty easy. The beginning is going to be difficult. It's a transition. It's an adjustment period. It's okay. It's it's hard for everybody. I give you that first semester to just kind of figure it out. It's okay to make missteps and not know what to do about certain things and have to Google everything. Just be thankful you have Google, you know. Um, and at the same time, you can allow yourself to breathe and to find a therapist and start working through all this shit. Hopefully your college has free therapy. Mine did and I utilized it in undergrad and grad, and it was super helpful. And so I really think that's how you rest and recover. And again, I give you full permission to be a college kid, to do things a little recklessly, to, you know, wear pajamas to class and stay up late and, you know, write a last minute paper. I know that some of that can sound very scary to a lot of us and feel very overwhelming, but all within reason of what's comfortable for you, I encourage you to do a little bit of that. And I feel like that's kind of allowing you to get to know yourself, be a little childlike when you need to, and rest and recover that that therapy and the the camaraderie of people around you making new friends and things like that. Like, uh, when you join college, one of my biggest recommendations for people when you first start is to join as many things as you can. I don't mean to overwhelm yourself. But I mean, if people are talking about sororities, and they seem nice, and you like them, Pepperdine had them it wasn't in the traditional sense we didn't have houses so it made it very accessible for me because I wouldn't wasn't sure if I'd want to live with that many girls and I didn't have to right I got to stay with my same people but had events planned or if you want to join a club there's you know different uh, clubs depending on what you're interested in whether it's music club or we had like a Hawaii club people from Hawaii joined and they would do like uh, luau's and there were all sorts of things so I just encourage you to get involved say yes Say yes to some things like that, because that's how you're going to make friends and feel like you're part of something. And I think that'll be a huge part of your healing. It's almost like you get to create your own family, you know, through your friends. Um, Yeah. And I'm glad that you're away from your family. And I would encourage you as much as possible not to return in the way that like never move back in with them, you know, limit your, your interaction with them. Because if it's that harmful and traumatizing to you, we don't need to re encounter that. That's a cool thing about making new friends in college and stuff like even I because we uh, couldn't always afford to or it wasn't always even worth it for me to fly home for Thanksgiving because it was just a long weekend. 
So I would just go with my my roommate who lived in Vegas. We'd just drive out and I'd spend Thanksgiving with her family and it was wonderful. And I think it's kind of a great opportunity for, in this case, for you to not have to be around your family as much. Take up, you know, take the the options that are given to you and you take the chance to not have to have to go home. Okay. Let's move on to question number two. Question number two says, Katie, could you talk about recovery after a suicide attempt, please? Of course, happy to do so. Even if you're glad you survived, all the factors in your life that caused you to get to that point still exist. So how is it possible to get better? Great question. Especially since it seems impossible to tell anyone about what happened apart from my therapist. It's been two months since and nothing is better. So it seems hopeless. Thanks for all your help. The first thing I want to talk about when we attempt to take our own life is the trauma. Nobody talks about that. When there's an attempt, we have to remember what it means to be traumatized and we fear for the safety and security of ourselves or someone we care about. Well, here we are, ourselves, and our safety, our life was threatened. Yes, it was threatened by us, but it was still, we got to that point, right? It can be really terrifying and traumatizing. Nobody talks about it. So I think a lot of your therapeutic work should focus on that for a while to help you kind of process it. And I think in that process, talking about the fact that things still exist, the reasons that you got to that point are still here. And then you're going to have to figure out how do we cope with that? Right? How do we maybe manage something process something? I don't know the specifics because there aren't there isn't a ton of detail. But let's say that one of the reasons that we got to that point of wanting to take our own life is that uh, one of our biggest relationships ended. Okay, can we grieve that? Can we allow ourselves to grieve it without thinking that we don't deserve to be here? Can we maybe do an impulse log? Can we start incorporating those into our daily life? Is our depression untreated? Have we tried medication? Have we tried different uh, treatments? I was even watching this Netflix special called, um, I think it's like, this is your mind on plants or no, how to change your mind. That's what's called. His book is called, this is your brain on plants. Um, but there was, it was all about the treatment and research of things like psilocybin and ketamine and MDMA. There's all sorts of different, you know, we would call like street drugs. I'm using air quotes if you're just listening that have now been shown to be incredibly effective in things like trauma and depression and OCD. There was even a guy who said that has changed his life, you know, from being like debilitated with OCD. And I'm not saying that that's, you know, necessarily going to be something that's accessible to you or something you're open to. But I'm just saying that like, there is hope. Sometimes we just have to have other things to look into. We have to have other people who can offer us that little spark to light the way when it feels like it's just dark out, you know? And so considering the fact that you have all these factors in your life that led to this, that's where I'd start to do the work. Check with your therapist on some possible solutions, allow them to assist you. Your therapist isn't going to be able to fix everything for you, but they can offer guidance and support as we maybe figure out how to, let's say, find a new place to live if that's one of those triggering things or grieving the loss of a relationship, um, managing our depression, um, find, maybe getting some new training to find a new job, right? There can be a lot of different reasons that we can find ourselves down that path thinking things aren't going to get better. But I want you to know that there there are resources available things can and will get better. Sometimes we just need someone to show us that, to like shine a light on something and be like, hey, did you think about that? Did you consider that as a treatment? Did you consider 
you know, this option for housing or for school, or I don't know what, again, I don't have any of the details, but instead of looking at it as those things still aren't better and they're still in my life, you know, it's, that's a very hopeless, helpless type of view. Can we reframe it? Can we instead think, well, those things, they fucking suck and I wish they weren't here. I'm in therapy, so I'm going to have to figure, we're going to have to find a way to better manage it. It doesn't mean, again, we don't have to all of a sudden think positive. That toxic positivity stuff doesn't work. It's more about bridge statements and and considering that there might be, again, that's kind of a bridge statement. There might be a way to maybe deal with that. I could be open to the thought that it's possible I'm not as big of a piece of shit as I thought, right? And I know that those things don't always ring true and they don't feel necessarily that positive. But trust me when I tell you they're the slightest bit less negative and you will feel the difference. So pay attention to how you're thinking about your situation, how you're talking to yourself. And let's work to make those more constructive, more bridge statement E as we try to come up with some kind of options. I know a lot of times, especially when we consider suicide, we feel like, well, I don't have any other options. We're so shut down, no, you know, any other avenue. Nope, 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 nope. We can't see another way. I encourage you to really lean into your therapist and that relationship to help have her or him shine that light and show you that there are other ways and there are actual choices. I find in my practice, I've learned over the years and even in my personal life, we have a lot of choices, but sometimes we just don't want to make them because that would mean upholding a boundary or ending a toxic relationship, or acknowledging pain and hurt. I want you to consider, you know, maybe what's getting in the way for you. And maybe that's where the work could start. Those are just some thoughts. Um, Obviously, there's a ton of stuff about suicide we could talk about. But that specifically, I think is really important. Okay. Now, there was a comment on this is additionally, do thoughts about not wanting to be on earth also count as suicidal? If There's no concrete plan. Great question. I would consider kind of these like thoughts without plans or the means to do it or anything like that. I call those suicidal ideations, meaning we're thinking about it. We have thoughts about it. It doesn't mean we're actively pursuing it. It doesn't mean that we have the means or the plan or any, the threat isn't imminent, but that's what I would call a suicidal ideation. Okay. Now there's another add-on that said, uh, Hey, I hope you're doing well. I am. I hope you're doing well. It says as an add-on, could we talk about having suicide or suicidal thinking as a way to feel in control mm-hmm, when everything seems that it isn't. I guess what I'm trying to say is that we can't control what ad- adversities can happen in our lives. But the only thing that we have absolute control over to an extent is the power what we have when to end it. The feeling that makes us feel like we have control when and how. This is a feeling that makes us feel in control when everything can't be. I haven't talked to my therapist about this because I don't like the idea that what I think about my feelings and my beliefs about suicide will permanently be in my medical records. It just makes me feel open to a Pandora's box that I won't be able to close. At the end, I will f- I will be seen and treated differently and everything will change. Also, it sounds silly, but I don't like that it will be permanently recorded on paper. That's fair. I care what people think of me. Therefore, I hate that. I hope this makes sense and relates to the subject. Yes, of course it does. Um, we can feel like the the suicidal thoughts or the plan even if it's a loose plan, is like our way out, right? It feels like we have at least a little control over how long I have to be in this shithole, right? I've had a lot of patients tell me that a lot of members of our community express that kind of discontent with their situation and feel like that potential out makes them feel better. And I get it. 
my encouragement for you is to not let that be the out. I know that this kind of goes against that whole depressive thoughts or the hopelessness that we may feel or that like, quote unquote, control. I'm here to tell you, I mean, yes, I guess you could say you have control over when you like leave this earth, but you have so much more control over your life than you probably recognize or want to admit. Because again, like I said earlier, we have choices that we can make and we often just don't want to make those choices because it would mean something else. And so if you're feeling hopeless or helpless because of, I don't know, like where you live, are there opportunities to live somewhere else? Could we save up money so that could happen, right? There are all these different choices and steps. Now, if our depressions get in the way and it makes us unmotivated and hard for us to follow through on anything, then could we find a way to treat that depression? Could that be medication therapy, et cetera, right? And so I guess, let me see, talk about having suicidal thinking as a way. Overall, as long as there's no plan, the threat's not imminent. I have a ton of patients who have felt this way and it doesn't necessarily stress me in the daily, like we're not doing check-ins, like they're not on a suicide safety plan yet because I don't think, because I feel like it's a, it's a coping skill. And my encouragement for you would be like your homework is to try to come up with some other ways that we can feel a little bit more in control of our life. Now, easier said than done, but things that I'm thinking of are like, I get to, and this might not be true because you might have a job where you have to get up early, but I get to control at least on the weekends when I get up, I get to control, you know, um, how often I go for walks, I get to control how much TV I watch, right? And I know that those things maybe don't feel as significant as the the attempt or the possibility of an, a suicide attempt. But sometimes we forget all the things that we do have control over all the choices we could make, like I could choose to start saving money, so that then I have maybe in a year or two, which I know can feel like forever, but I'm just being realistic, to have an opportunity to buy my own car. So I'm not dependent on X, Y, or Z person or to get my own place to live with my friend, blah, blah, you know, or maybe that means I need to go back into some work training so I can get a job that pays me more. Now, Again, I don't have like any details on what the issues were that are leading to this need for control, but I encourage you to assess your life for other things that you actually do have control over. And I don't mean that in a way that like is going to lead to an unhealthy, another unhealthy coping skill, like self-injury, eating disorder, behavior, things like that. But paying attention to where you do have power and control in other healthier options can be incredibly empowering and revealing. Because of our depression or our suicidal thoughts, we often forget about them. It blocks them out. It's like it's like we're in a, a we were in a room filled with all these exits. And then slowly but surely, depression and suicidal thoughts shut the lights off so we can't see where those doors are. Those doors are still there. We just don't really know where they are anymore and we need to slowly start like, I don't know, getting our lighter out and until her flashlight until we can find one of those doors and then be reminded of the others, you know, and I know that maybe is a weird analogy, but I find that, that that's what it is, we can feel like um, a suicide plan is like our only way out. And I'm here to tell you, there are tons of other ways to manage tons of other options for control. That one doesn't have to be the one you deserve to feel good and live a wonderful life. And I don't want any, you know, situation or setback to take that from any of us. 
Okay. You're important and I'm glad you're here. I want you to stay here. Okay. And also understand the not wanting things to be recorded on paper. You can, I mean, it depends on your therapist, but you can ask that they don't write that stuff down because you don't want it on your record. Sometimes they'll, they'll allow for that, but suicide stuff, I'm just not sure because we, I feel like they'd feel legally mandated to write it. So yeah, we might be kind of stuck with that one. Okay, let's move on to question number three. Question says, hey, Katie, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Says, I'm wondering, how do you make major life decisions that impact your future while you're struggling to take care of your mental health in the present? Oof, yeah. For my specific example, how do I know if I'm staying in, oh, if staying in university is worth my rapidly declining mental health? It is not. I'm here to tell you. I don't have to read anymore. It is not. Says, I have been taking time in school, but because of my struggles with multiple anxiety disorders, grief, trauma, abuse, learning disabilities, ADHD, and a couple of head injuries, I'm barely able to keep up. At this rate, it will take me at least another two years to finish my degree, and I've already been at it for four. I am exhausted from struggling with both my mental and physical health, advocating for accommodations in a system that's not built for people like me. Yeah, I... I yeah, I hear you on that one. I've worked with patients over the years and it's always such a fucking nightmare, a difficult home life. And I think I may have found myself knee deep in a quickly evolving eating disorder. Ooh. I'm connected to all the available resources, but it just doesn't seem to be enough because you need more support and that's okay. I should add that I don't think taking time off would help me because it would just feel like prolonging all of my struggles. No, We'll get into this when I really just want it done and over with one way or another. How do you prioritize your mental health in the present when it feels like by doing that you could negatively impact your future? Thank you. Also, I'm halfway through traumatized and it's already been so interesting and helpful. Oh, I'm so glad that makes me feel so good. Now, nothing. I'm going to say that again. Nothing in life is worth our deteriorating mental health. We only get one body. That means one mind. We only get one and we need to take care of it. Getting our degree, sure, is important. I'm not going to discredit that. However, doing that to your own detriment to have a raging eating disorder, to have not getting enough resources at school that you need. So it's even more difficult to have anxiety disorders and trauma and grief, PTSD, all sorts of shit going on. You're not, you can't do it all. It's okay to take a break. I know you're like, I've been at it for four and it's already going to take me two. Everybody takes their own amount of time to get things done. It's all about what our resilience level, like what, what's our capabilities in the moment. You're not like Joe Schmo over there or Sally Lou over here. You're you. And maybe we need another year to take a break. Until we feel okay enough to be able to manage school. Maybe during that time when we're taking a break, we can find an advocate, someone who can help us access the support and resources at school that we're not getting. Because it's still not enough. Like you said, the accommodations are not sufficient. Maybe we can access those differently. Maybe, you know, there's a lot that we can do. And I, I'm here to tell you, I know you want to finish. You're like, fuck it. I just want to get over and done with. I don't want to have to go to school again. I'm, I'm out of it. But your rapidly declining mental health is going to make it so you can't anyways. There's this old, it's a saying, and I forget who even said it. So sorry, I'm not crediting the person. But they said, if you need a break, you better take it because otherwise your body 
is going to take it for you and it's going to be at a really inconvenient time. And that is the truth. I'm here to tell you, I, I can't tell you the number of examples I've had at work or school where a patient of mine doesn't listen, doesn't want to take breaks, doesn't want to go to a day program, doesn't want to get a referral for a higher level of care, doesn't want to see me more. And it's push, 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 push. I've had a patient have a meltdown right before finals and not be able to finish any of her courses. I've had a patient who wasn't able to finish the LSAT and failed it and paid all this money. I've had patients go um, to a work to work only to have a panic attack and not be able to do the presentation that they were so that was why they wouldn't take the break and go get more support. Those are just a couple examples. I'm sure people in our community have had their own examples. If you feel so brave and bold and confident to share, that would be incredibly helpful for people too, because it will force that break and it's not worth it. The school will always be there can always finish your degree. And maybe I would even almost encourage you, and you might already be doing this, but taking it like at a like it says at this rate. So I'd assume you're not taking a full course load. But even when you go back, maybe one class at a time. Yes, I know that sucks. Does it mean we're going to stay at that pace forever? No. But if we are, so what? Right? We're going to have to, again, put our health first. Mental health, physical health. Remember my old saying together, or we're working together towards a healthy mind and a healthy body because they're connected. We can't have one without the other. And so you're not going to be able to finish school if you keep up this pace. So we really need you to take a break. I really encourage you to pause your studies, take a medical leave and go get a higher level of care. We might need an inpatient treatment center for a few months. Like I said, maybe we just need that break we need to get some more support and then do not come back full force slowly come back into regular life and regular school so we don't get overwhelmed and find ourselves back where we started we want this to be the break that's really worth it where we're able to actually get support get the help we need and start to feel better I know it's hard no one I don't think anybody out here would be like oh taking a break from life was like super easy like I was able to go inpatient nobody feels that way Everybody feels like I can't leave, I can't take time off. If I do, I'm going to lose that job or I'm going to, you know, be kicked out of school or I'm just never going to finish or it's never easy, but I'm here to tell you it's always worth it. Okay? Now, let me see. There was a comment on this. Okay, it says, "To add on to this, do you or anyone else in the community know of any careers that would be good for people who struggle with their mental health?" When I'm struggling with my mental health, even the simplest tasks are so exhausting and it just feels hopeless. I feel like I have so much to do and to figure out so I can make a life for myself, but I can't seem to do anything but the bare minimum. There are tons of jobs that are incredibly accommodating. A lot of, and I know this is kind of sucky, especially with mental health because people can be assholes, but I've, I know a lot of people in our community do customer service from home. So you don't have to go into work. You get to work kind of these chunks of hours throughout your day. And you have, but you do have to engage with people on the phone. Um, also, I know a lot of members of our community are also part of like, if this, I don't know if this is your strength or not, but I'm just giving you some ideas. Um, the IT kind of space where it comes to like coding and UX. And if you're not even into computers, words that I'm saying that aren't even, you know, it doesn't matter. That's another opportunity to potentially work from home and not have to engage with people all the time and and be able to be more sedentary you don't have to move around like being a waitress or something or a waiter would be much more you know uh energy 
uh, zapping. Um, there, and most most big corporations will have some jobs that are very accommodating. I guess I'd have to know because it just says for your mental health. I think you honestly really just want a a career in a corporation that has really good benefits because then you get you know mental health days you have great coverage you probably get therapy like um sean and i've worked with youtube and google for years and they have wonderful wonderful benefits for their people i think facebook does as well and i would assume almost all tech companies uh offer great support to their employees and so that might be something too just to look into um but careers as a whole i think things you have to find what is your breath in and I mean that like is what's fulfilling for you because I've had jobs that have paid me well like I told you guys as a sales rep like years and years and years ago it was so soul sucking but it paid me well and it helped me pay for down my student loans a little and pay for Sean and I's wedding and I hated it and it like eroded it eroded my soul it was horrible I just couldn't do it anymore and so but I did it for a short period of time for like an end goal and so for me that was actually really detrimental to my mental health even though I had amazing health benefits like therapy was free I had all sorts of good health coverage but I couldn't do it so if you can find something that is like a breath in for you right like me doing what I do now is like fulfilling and, and super, it just feels so fucking good. And I want to keep doing it. And so therefore, it's a breath in, I feel energized through work. I want you to find that for yourself. And be curious about it. it's okay to, to start and stop jobs for a little bit to try things out, see what you like. I mean, I have friends who love being bartenders and waitresses, too. I, that seems like it might be a little too energetic for you, like too exhausting, but maybe not maybe you're more extroverted. And so engaging with people gives you that, you know, it's, it's like that energy back be curious, be okay trying things out and not liking them. It's okay. We're just learning. I think everybody out there has had multiple jobs of various types. And we ended up where we're supposed to be. Give yourself that same grace, allow yourself to try certain things out, consider certain jobs and career opportunities, you know, chat with people online about it, hear what they do. There's so many jobs out there. We just have to kind of start narrowing it down as to whether you want to engage with the public or not. Do you like technology or not? Do you, you know, do you like to make things with your hands, like be part of a production line of some sort? You know, those are all things to consider. Do you like hair and makeup? Like, what is it that you like to do? Let's think about it. Consider, you know, what's out there and let's give some things a try. Okay. Let's move on to question number four. It says, hey, Katie, I hope your day is going great. It is. It's been raining outside and I'm just loving the noise. My question is about repressed trauma memories. How can we tell if they are real or not? For context, I have a very strong imagination. I tend to imagine myself in bad situations or make up scenarios where bad things happened to me as a child. However, recently, I thought of one about my uncle sexually abusing me when I stayed with him for a few days when I was four or five years old, and somehow it just felt more real. I suddenly became very uncomfortable with my body and around my family, but I can't tell if this is just all made up in my head or if there's actually something there. Maybe it's just convenient to blame things on my uncle, or it seems like more of a possibility since we're no longer in contact. Could I be gaslighting myself into thinking something happened when it didn't? I certainly don't want to blame someone for something. That's all just a half-developed story that I made up. Sorry for the long question. That's okay. So great question. And overall, repressed trauma memories are reliable. Now, I know that you have 
you know, a very strong imagination and you've done things. So that kind of changes things here. But I just want everybody to know that repressed memories that all of a sudden bubble up are, I want I forget the percentage, but if you've read Body Keeps the Score, they talk about just how reliable these memories are. And the fact that over years and years and years, they would ask people about things and they would remember it just the same. So you can trust repressed trauma memories. However, there are some very important components to this. Number one, your therapist should never, never, never guide a memory into something like to try to turn it into something that it was not. A therapist should just ask you open ended wide questions and any memory that comes up would be completely from you recalling something like a smell. It's usually one of our senses, something that you smelled or tasted or even a song that you heard, like all of that can trigger those memories or being around a certain person. So that should come from within you and not your therapist, you know, creating the memory through bad questioning, essentially unethical questioning. Now, because you like to, you tend to imagine yourself in bad situations, I would be curious, and this might be part of your homework, is like, how is what you were experiencing or thinking happened with your uncle, this memory, different from that? Can we differentiate the two? And I would talk with your therapist, hopefully you're seeing a therapist, but if not, I'd look into seeing one. Um, but differentiating those two would be really important to kind of see how the this repressed memory that you think is a trauma memory how that's experienced and how we've experienced the things that we've imagined, because we want to see how different or similar they are. And that can kind of help us decide. And my second big piece of advice is, well, I guess there's like two more things. So one is like, if there's family that you, I know it might be tricky because of what this is, but if there's anybody you can talk to, not necessarily, it doesn't have to be like, Hey, do you think my uncle, it doesn't have to be that direct, but you could talk about old memories with a family member to help kind of give color or story to a certain period in your life. So if at the age of four or five, I know that memories might be crazily hazy. But if you like lived in a different house, or used to go to the lake in the summers, can we talk to a sibling or a cousin or, or even our parent about like that time frame? And say like, hey, I had this weird memory bubble up about this, uh, you know, when I was four or five. And, you know, what was happening then? Like ask them for more details that can sometimes help fill things in. And again, someone mentioning one thing or another, boom, can spark a memory. And we can be like, yes, that did happen. Or, oh, no, that didn't at all. It could clear it up for you. Um, and the third, the other kind of component is like photos of yourself at that age or any old family videos. If there's any way for you to kind of go back and look at it and not relive it because we don't want to be like, if this did happen, I don't want to traumatize you more, but at least to, to try to, again, trigger those memories and see what comes up for you. Um, and in therapy, you could work on like a trauma timeline, putting where you think it happened and then trying to fill in other memories like, oh, I do remember, you know, going to kindergarten or first grade, like where, you know, where do we have clear memory? And can we think about that time frame and see if because sometimes when we think about a time close to the age where this happened, it will trigger more memories and we'll be able to recall more. Not always but sometimes. So those are just some of my tips and tricks and ways to that hopefully help you clear that up because I know it can be really confusing and hard and devastating. But at the end, I do want everybody to know that overall, you can trust trauma memories, those repressed memories that come back. They're, they're, they're pretty reliable, not 100%. Obviously, nothing's 100%. But I want to say it was like 80 something percent. So yeah, okay. <clears throat> Question number five. 
This question says, hey, Katie, I want to ask about dissociation during sexual assault. I was sexually assaulted by my brother years ago. He was one year younger than me. I was sleeping and I had a freeze response. I was 15 and I didn't do anything about it. He doesn't even know that I know. He didn't do it again, but he kept coming into my room late at night frequently for two years. I sometimes feel like someone is touching me and I immediately wake up to find out it's him. Anyways, he always had an excuse of on him or excuse for being there. We're still living in the same house and see each other every single day, but he's not doing this anymore. I know I have trauma, but I don't feel like it did affect me whatsoever. Hmm. I didn't break down or anything. A lot of people don't break down. Because I was sleeping, I didn't see him doing whatever he was doing to my body, except when he opened my eyes to check if I was awake. Oh my goodness. When I try to remember what happened, I remember it as if I was watching him do it because you were dissociated. So it's like someone else's experience. You get what I mean? Of course, that's why dissociation is such a coping skill because we almost like remove ourselves from it and we can feel like, oh, well, I guess it didn't really happen to me. Maybe that's why I'm not giving any responses. Now I always feel like I'm living in a dream. Oh, we're dissociating. Even when I'm told, even when I told my therapist about it, I didn't get emotional or anything. Is this whole thing normal? My therapist knows about this, but I find it difficult to tell her that he's my brother since I have a great family. I really do. She only knows that he's a relative. Do you find it important to let her know? I would also like to add that I was sexually abused before that at the age of four or five by my cousin, and he was one year older than me. So we were children but I still have flashbacks from that experience. I'm also dealing with grief. Both Lost both my grandparents within two months this year, and of course, I gave no response. My therapist isn't forcing it. She's always She always says that she won't force me to say anything I don't want to say. She doesn't even bring up anything unless I do. Thanks for everything, Katie. Of course. Okay. Couple thoughts. Now, child-on-child sexual abuse is still sexual abuse you're not giving a response because you're traumatized and you're dissociating as a way to cope. I'd assume even the grief is making the dissociation stronger because that's dissociation happens when our, what's happening in our world is too overwhelming for our system. We don't have the, the resources or the means to process it. So our brains like pulls us out, either removes us from ourself, which I think is what's happening here or removes us from our environment where it can be like, we're watching ourselves in a stage play or in a movie, right? We can feel that removal and that removal makes sure that we, we sustain and we're okay. It's really adaptive. It's to help us get through a shitty time. Now, because we have these, this, these traumas, we, and we haven't processed them. We're just dissociating all the time to like get through. And so my, honestly, my best advice for you would be to start working on some grounding techniques because we need to get you back here because we can't process traumas when we're dissociated. And you're still, essentially what's happening is you're still stuck in that freeze state. A full body shake might be able to help even to kind of release some of that, like that pent up energy from the trauma. Um, And then, you know, there's a ton of different grounding techniques I've offered over the years, like counting colors in a room, how many things are brown, blue, black, etc. The ABCs, what in your areas starts with an A, a B, a C, go through them all. There can be a lot of different things we can do to try to keep ourselves grounded, playing with silly putty, fidget toys, things like that. Um, But yes, you were traumatized by your brother. You were assaulted. You also were sexually abused when you were younger. I... 
I wonder, part of me wonders if you had, because it was your cousin, he was one year older. I'm, like, do we have an uncle who's abusing the children and then the children? Like, I'm someone, for your brother to do that, I'm always very suspicious. It doesn't, it's not always the case. But when we're young, I feel like it's often we're abusing someone because we ourselves were abused. Because children at a very, very young age don't think to sexually assault one another, right? Children are curious. There is like healthy curiosity when it comes to like being a human and being a child because children still, you know, want to know about their bodies and are curious about things and like, you know, touch different parts of themselves and are very, again, curious. That's very different from going into your sister's room while she's asleep and assaulting her. Do you see what I mean? And also you were, you were older. You weren't like little kids where you're like four or five, three or four, you know, like learning about bodies and still natural curiosity of things. So it's way past the, like, I show you yours, you show me mine kind of childlike natural development. And I know sometimes that's hard for people to, to hear and understand, but there, there is a differentiating factor here. And even regardless, I do also want to acknowledge that regardless of what behavior took place, again, in order for us to be traumatized, we have to fear for this, our safety or the safety of someone we love. So if we think that we could be hurt if we don't go along with something, that's a trauma. We could be traumatized by that. So it's all about our, the way that we envisioned or our, or our, what's the word I'm looking for? It's almost like how we processed an experience. That's what's important. Does that make sense? I hope so. Okay. So, um, what's the question? So it's like someone else. Oh, I get what you mean. That feeling like it's someone else's experience. That's dissociation. That's protective. And that's, that is why you're not giving any responses. Why emotional, emotionally, you're just like shut down because it's safer. Um, I don't, I do think it's helpful for you to tell your therapist who it was. I don't think you have to do it right now. And it's something that has to happen at a certain time frame. I think it'd be helpful for you. Because I do find there's always this because you were abused, and yes, I'm using that word. I know it might be hard to hear, but because you were abused, we can have a lot of guilt, shame, and embarrassment. Like, I didn't fight back. I just froze. Why didn't I fight back, right? Why did I let that happen? He is my brother. I think he loves me. Something must be wrong with me that this happened to me twice. We have shame. Something's wrong with me. We have, we have guilt. Why did I let this happen? Embarrassment. I can't believe it was my own brother. We can have all these swirling thoughts about it. And it can be really difficult for us to admit that that happened in our family because you're like, I have a great family. Like, I really do. Yes, we can have a great, quote unquote, great family and have things happen. It doesn't mean because our brother did one thing, that the whole family is shit. These two things can coexist. Although I'm always a little suspicious and I'm sure your therapist would be too, to want to know like what what happened was this did something happen to our brother before what you know what took place has he done it to other people like there's a lot of questions about you know why this happened from your cousin and now your brother too but that doesn't mean that your family is a bad family your brother hurt you and you deserve to be able to speak about it you don't have to hold this isn't a secret that you need to keep this isn't even this is your secret to tell does that make sense you don't have to keep it it costs too much. You know, sometimes the weight of keeping a secret is just too, it's too much, too heavy. It's okay to let it go when you feel ready. I feel like there's so much I could talk about in this question, 
but I feel like I answered your questions. Let me know if I didn't. Let's move on to question number six. Number six says, I am autistic and sometimes worry about how my sensitivity to touch could potentially affect future intimate relationships. I've never dated anyone and question if it's okay to engage in intimate acts despite not really desiring sex just to please your partner. That's interesting. Are there any damaging effects of doing things that you don't particularly enjoy solely to appease someone you love? Great question. I hope it's okay. I've asked this a few times before. If it's not upvoted this week, I will cease asking. Sorry for any inconvenience. I left that part in because you are never an inconvenience. Feel free to re-ask your questions as many times as you want until it gets answered. It's okay. You're not bugging me. I'm just trying to get through the ones that people thumbsed up the most. Feel free to ask as many times as you need, okay? Great questions. Now, the main question is, are there any damaging effects of doing things you don't particularly enjoy solely to appease someone you love? No, not, no, that's the short answer. And the reason I say no, there aren't any damaging effects is because when we're doing something out of love, because we love this person and we want to please them, right? We're doing it of our own free will. We're making a choice to do it. And even though we don't love, like, let's say we don't love having sex, but we're doing it because we love them. That's a, that's a loving act. That's not traumatizing. Remember, trauma or abuse occurs, you know, when we feel threatened for our safety, physical or emotional, or the safety of someone we love. We're forced into something against our will. We, you know, anything like that. This is not, this is something that's done with love. I mean, you could even, I know this is going to be a weird comparator, but you could even compare this to like, I don't really love watching UFC fights, but Sean does and I'll watch them with him. And I comment and pretend to be engaged a little bit because I love him. If he was here, would I watch them? No, never, never catch me watching it. But I do it out of love, right? And he does the same thing. Sometimes I'll come home and he'll put country music on really quickly because he knows that I love it, right? There are small things in every relationship we do all the time, not because we want to and not because we like it, but because we know they do. Those are things we do out of love and joy for each other. And I think that that's really what, you know, part of what makes relationships so powerful and so amazing. And so you can engage in intimate acts to please your partner because you know that they like it, even if you don't. As long as it's not, it's something you're doing of your own choice. You're consenting to the behavior. Make sense? Okay. Let's move on to question number seven. It says, hi, Katie. Can attachment and intimacy issues be unintentionally self-inflicted? Hmm. Why or why not would, and what would the healing process be? Very, very interesting questions. My parents are great and I feel genuinely blessed to have them but I get angry when they offer any kind of affection, attention, or show concern for me in any way. This feeling comes out of nowhere and I can't seem to control it. Even simple questions like, how are you feeling? Trigger an instant and unexplained inner rage. This is really interesting. I feel this way when I'm offered affection and support by people other than my parents as well. Hmm. I always get extremely uncomfortable in emotionally charged situations and feel intense anxiety when I am the subject of sympathy, concern, affection, physical or verbal, or attention in general. I feel guilty because I can't tell, oh, because I can tell that it hurts my parents when I reject their love and support. 
And I often feel lonely because I've isolated myself from everyone. But I can't seem to control my response. And being alone just seems like the lesser of two evils. I recognize my need for care and comfort, and I often crave it. But I just can't accept it from anyone. For as long as I can remember, I've always had a tendency to keep myself at a distance, physically and emotionally, from other people. And I've been told many times throughout my life that I seem like I have no emotions, even though I actually tend to feel things pretty intensely. Hmm. I just can't tell people, or I just can't let people in or myself out, even on the rare occasions when I actually want to. I'm not sure why I feel this way, but I wonder if it's possible that the attachment and intimacy issues I have are actually caused by my own avoidant behavior. As far as trauma, I've had a few negative childhood experiences that were stressful enough to trigger fight flight at the time. But looking back, I can't tell if they're connected to these feelings that I have or if I would even consider them to be traumatic because number one, I have almost no emotional reaction upon recalling these memories, almost as if it happened to someone else dissociation. Number two, I had even forgotten about some of them for a while. Hello, repression. I want to change and stop isolating myself and learn to be vulnerable, but I don't know where to start because I don't know what is causing me to have these reactions. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Thanks. Great question. And I have a lot of questions. Um, first of all, the, the trauma or the adverse childhood experiences or whatever you want to call them, I'd be very curious about those. Um, I'd be interested in what happened, what, if you remember, how much you remember, what happened, when did they happen? Did anybody listen to you when you told them about it? Did you tell anybody about it? I, if you're able, I'd like you to like dig into that because I'm very, I feel like there could be something there that might not be, but we have to be curious, right? Not judgmental as we are like being detectives about our own past experience because so, so there's that component. So I'm, I'm very curious about those traumatic ex or overwhelming experiences, whatever you want to call them. And then the second thing, and something that I'm always curious about is when it seems like our parents are like loving and supportive and whatever, do we feel, is it what we needed from them? Like if we think back to child us, we might have to re-engage with child us. And I encourage you, I cannot encourage you strongly enough to try your best to remember what it was like at that age. I know you're looking from adult perspective to little you, but when we do that, we often forget how limited our resources were when we were that age, how limited our emotional intelligence was, our ability to remove ourselves from a situation is pretty limited, right? Try to remember at least logistically what it was like to be a kid at that age, okay? But when we look back, were, was the love and support that our parents were offering us what we actually wanted? Or was it not the right like flavor, let's say, meaning that like, sometimes we'll have these emotionally absent parents, but they think they're doing a great job because they themselves can't check in on their like check in on their own emotions, right? They're not comfortable with their emotions. So when they check check in on us, it's more like, how you doing? Good? Okay, good. And, and that's like it. And if we ever express discontent, they like try to distract us with something else and we do something different um, instead of allowing for us to feel that kind of way. Does that make sense? And so I'd just be curious about that because too often I think we judge our own responses saying like, well, my parents were great. And I'm always like, I'm not dogging on parents. Parents do the best they can, but sometimes the best they can isn't what we need, right? So like, can we just without pointing fingers or feeling like we need to be angry and have a scapegoat or anything like that? Can we just at least be curious about what it was we needed growing up? And what did we get? And there may not be something there. But again, I'm saying those traumas I'm very interested in. And if our parents gave us what we actually needed, not just what like, 
seems to be what parents should give. Does that make sense? Because sometimes we can have this view of like, oh, parents should like put a roof over our head and feed us. And yes, and yes. Um, and do all these certain things. And we forget about the emotional component or our parents, my parents try to be there for me, but, but my mom's like really pushy and aggressive. And like, I never get to come to her. She like forces it on me. Right. Is it that? Cause I even have friends whose parents tried to like almost overcorrect from their childhood. And they're like helicopter parents. Like they were all up in my friend's business about like, so what, what feelings are coming up for? It was just too much, you know, teenage, they were teenagers. They're like, get out of here. So what was it? How did it feel? What did you really need or crave? I'm those two things I'm very, I'm very curious about. And then there's a third thing. And this is kind of like the homework for you. And this is the homework for all of us. If we ever like, where did this thing come from? If it's been throughout our lives, we're not going to be able to track back and be like, when did this start? Because we're like, I don't remember a time when I didn't feel like this. Can we look back on like the last situation where this took place or maybe two situations ago, if we need to be more removed and write about what it is that goes through our minds when someone tries to offer support or kindness, when someone's loving? Is it like shame-filled trauma response? Like if they really knew me, they wouldn't do this or... I'm so gross. Don't look at me. I don't want you to see me. I don't want to be seen. I don't want to be touched. Like, do we feel like repulsed by our own being? That's probably a trauma response. Usually sexual abuse leads to that. Not always, but sometimes. Is it Yeah, just like, those are just a couple things that come to my mind. Like, what is it that comes up for us? What's our self talk like when someone does that? Because the the anger out this like irrationally angry, like, gah, Anger is protective. So for some reason, when people compliment you or are kind to you, you feel vulnerable. There's a little part of you that feels like someone just is trying to get in there and you're like, nope, right? Lock it down, shut it down. It's not safe. So I'm very, you know, I want to, I'm very curious about like, why, you know, well, what, what are the thoughts like for you? Why are we being so protective of ourselves? Why do we feel like we're under threat? And again, I know it's kind of shitty answer, like the earlier one that I was like, that's a shitty answer, but only, you know, and we have to be curious, not judgmental about that process and about what we think automatically. And like, cause that response is telling us something, right? Um, I've talked about it before, like overreactions. We talk about it like it's a bad thing, but it's a great tip and tool for therapy because it's this big red flag where we're like, wow, what is causing that? That doesn't make any sense. And we get to dig in and figure out why. And where? Because I guarantee there is something there. And once we figure it out, we can begin our healing process. Okay. Let's move on to question number eight. This question says, I feel like I'm in such a rut with my husband. I'm by no means a short-tempered person, but lately my fuse is non-existent. We've been financially secure until recently when the prices of everything skyrocketed. I I feel you. We no longer have funds to do things or go places together. And there's just zero fun happening. I often find myself micromanaging him to make sure that regular daily tasks are done, literally just like getting dressed in the mornings. We also have a toddler. So the chaos of age, age three takes any attention and energy either of us have left. I feel like we've bottomed out and I don't know where to go. I don't want to talk about separation, but also his presence is just irritating. I want to have my happy, cozy, loving home back. Okay. So having a fuse that's non-existent tells me one main thing that we have no resilience, that we're, we're burnt, burnt out. 
And that can happen for a lot of different reasons. And that you have to own. Okay. That's your side of the street. Your husband has to clean up his own side of the street, but that's your side. Okay. So your homework is to figure out why you're so burnt. You named a few. We have a toddler. We don't have a, a money to go do fun things. You can do fun things for free, by the way. I'll, I'll talk about that. Um, also, you know, I don't know. He's just bothering you, I guess. I'm not sure. Maybe he's not keeping up with things like you're wanting. I don't know. But things are happening for you that's causing this reaction. So I want you to be very curious about why you don't feel like you have any resilience. And these are things I want you to check in on. Here's like a checklist or a questionnaire to kind of consider. How are you sleeping? We sleeping okay? Maybe not. I don't know. We need to get enough sleep, number one. I know you have a toddler and there's always excuses to stay up late. Get your ass to bed. Get enough sleep, okay? Are we showering regularly? I know that sounds really simple and silly, but a shower can fucking sometimes change your life. How are we eating? Are we eating regularly? Are we eating balanced meals? Notice I didn't say healthy, unhealthy, because that doesn't really exist. It just needs to be balanced. Do you have like a protein, a veggie or a fruit, a carbohydrate? Are you getting food in your system every three to four hours? How's that going? Or are we mindlessly maybe eating food that's not very nutritious all day, every day, and not really paying attention to our hunger fullness? I'm curious, okay? Then... Are we taking care of like our basic health? Or are we taking medications that we're supposed to be taking? You know, we've gone to our doctors and made sure everything's okay. Like there's basic stuff that we can do too to take care of our basic needs. Um, yeah, those are just a few things just to get you going. I'm also curious if you get to see your friends ever. Do you have any time to yourself? Now I know you have a toddler and that can be tricky, but navigate it with your husband. You know, he can go out with his buddies one night. You go out with your girls another night or they can come over. Or something like that, have a good girlfriend pick up food and bring it over or you cook and they cook something, bring, I don't know, make it happen budgetary wise, get to spend some time doing, spending time with people you love. And then we're going to have to get creative about fun things that don't cost anything. Uh, there's very cheap things like zoos, museums, things like that, that are very, very cheap. Or we can pack up a little picnic. We can go out to a park. I know it's been pouring rain here in Texas. I'm not sure where you are, but I'm just saying there are cheap ways to get out and have a good time go for a hike go for a walk around your area drive downtown park your car in a lot maybe far away that's free and go walking and wandering go window shopping maybe you stop and go on a tuesday get the dollar tacos for taco tuesday right i don't know what your how much your budget allows but we can do things for very cheap and still have a good time i think we're having that like almost that negativity what's what do they call it it's not self-fulfilling prophecy but it's like a, a confirmation bias when we only see the things that we want to see and i'm not saying like you want things to feel shitty because you don't but it because we're all we think about is that then when we look out into our environment all we see is that does that make sense and so instead maybe another homework assignment because i'm apparently i'm just throwing them out at you and i apologize is every day when you get up i want you to consider the previous day and I want you to come up with one thing that you're grateful for you can start with something simple I have a roof over my head I had food to eat I have a healthy toddler those are some small things okay I have clothes on my back I got to shower whatever start doing that because that confirmation bias or whatever it's like we're looking for the things to make it feel worse and then and my final bit of 
advice on this is talk to your husband. I know it's hard. We all have shitty time. Relationships take work. Life is trying. Having a toddler is exhausting. I don't even have kids. And that's one of the reasons why I don't even know the exhaustion that you probably feel. Okay, so I don't want to pretend to know your experience. But I do know that in order for you to get this loving house back, you've got to talk to your husband. I always, when it comes to couples counseling, one of the things I would always say to my patients is err on the side of over communication because couples never communicate. We're always afraid of hurting your feelings or saying something. Speak only for yourself. Don't make assumptions about them and make sure you actually listen when they talk. Those are the rules. That's all. Don't listen to them to win an argument or listen to learn about their experience. I think the way to even open a conversation with him is just to say, I know I've been irritated and or agitated lately and have been like on your ass. I'm having a hard time. I'm feeling really disconnected. I've, I feel like since prices, everything skyrocketed, we don't even have any fun anymore. Talk to him like that. Let him, I mean, if he comes at you aggressively, if he's like, what the fuck are you talking about? You can say, I We'll talk about this another time. I just really want to talk to you about it. But if you're upset, I don't want to talk when you're upset. And you, I give you permission to leave the room. Chances are he's going to say, I know me too. And I've been, I've been so agitated. Or he could say, yeah, you have been really irritated. If you're going to open this conversation, you need to have a little bit of resilient squish to allow for that pushback to say, yeah, you have been that way. Because you already acknowledged it. But we need to be able to hear it from him too and be okay. Keep our cool. Continue talking. Because... Again, communicate, over-communicate with him. Otherwise, you'll always feel alone because you're putting yourself there alone. We have to do it together. We have to figure out why this ship has gotten so off course. And it hasn't been very long. So it'll help pull you out of that rut. And if you like to plan things and that makes you feel excited too, because that's like my love language, you know, it's like planning things and like shared activities. Um, you could put together like a, a little picnic kind of thing or something that you feel like you could afford that's like a little getaway you have a toddler I mean if they were a little older I'd be like build a, a blanket fort and like have a little have dinner in there one night or something but find some ways to bring fun back into your life because I'm telling you it doesn't actually have to cost anything I know we think it's like dinners out and going to shows and going on vacation in these expensive places and I'm I'm watching on Instagram too everybody's in fucking Italy or Hawaii what? Right? It's so frustrating. I'm like, not us. Life's expensive right now, right? But that's, that's okay. We don't have to compare. The only thing I want to compare myself to is me five minutes ago. How am I doing now? Right? So find some ways to bring your life up a little bit, just a little bit. Find some little fun to put fun back in your life. Also, I mean, three-year-olds, even though they can be very exhausting, they can also be a lot of fun. So if it's really warm out, you know, go down a slip and slide with them on your lap or something. I don't know. Have a good time find some fun for free. It's there. Let's move on to question number nine. It says, hi, Katie, how do I begin to heal from a trauma when it was therapy itself that was traumatizing? Oh, I'm so sorry. Some therapists just suck. In January, after an involuntary hospitalization that, should have, that shouldn't have happened, it was never suicidal, homicidal, or psychotic. I was given a BPD diagnosis, despite having no history of active suicidality, self-harm, or anger issues due to CPTSD not being in the DSM. Why are people so stupid? And dumped by my therapist. I use that term because after spending nine months telling me I'm not going anywhere, she suddenly flipped and announced that she couldn't see me anymore. 
I asked to spend the rest of the session processing this loss. I reminded her that clearly she understood I had attachment issues if she felt comfortable assigning a BPD diagnosis. And she said that time would be better spent finding a a DBT therapist and spent the rest of the telehealth session trying to get off the call with me. What? I calmly asked if we could have a few more sessions as I transitioned and built rapport with a new therapist, especially in light of the fact that we never figured out what had made my trauma symptoms worse in the first place, which is what led to the hospitalization. She refused, and when I begged for just a little transitional support, she hung up the call exactly on the hour. Holy fuck. Leaving me with no therapeutic support, even while I cried and struggled to breathe, she never even asked if I was safe. She sent me... She then sent me a short email with three Psychology Today links in it. What? You could file a a pretty significant claim here. Okay. Um, And I never heard from her again. I ended up discovering that um, adherent DBT is not for me. And I'm now grateful to be in the care of a wonderful therapist who can provide brain spotting, IFS, which is internal family systems, and some DBT, uh, which is dialectical behavior therapy. Sorry, I did not. I'll tell you what that was before, where it's needed. I know this is a long explanation, but I'm still struggling to understand whether this behavior on my old therapist part was inappropriate. Yes, super unethical and actually kind of illegal. Or if this was just my perception of it. I struggle to trust my new therapist. And every time I share a wayward emotion or any amount of anger or discontent with the therapeutic process or worsening trauma symptoms, I live in fear that she will dump me or hospitalize me. I've told her about this, and she's assured me that she would never walk away with no notice and support. And she's been clear about the circumstances for hospitalization, and she seems to not be too risk adverse. But I can't believe her, no matter how trustworthy she seems. I'd appreciate your thoughts. Thanks for all that you do. Okay, what your therapist did is incredibly unethical. Yes, therapists can decide that we need to be referred out. Unfortunately, as a therapist, sometimes we have to terminate care. I've done it for various reasons over the years. Hopefully, the goal is that we're terminating together because you're doing so well and fly, little bird, fly. That's the ideal scenario. However, sometimes patients aren't doing well and they're getting worse and I have to refer them out to treatment. And sometimes, depending on how long they've stayed in treatment, how well they've done in treatment, or if I even have availability when they get out, depending on our agreement going in, I might not be able to accept them back. I usually do. I don't think I've ever actually had that happen, but I have heard from some people that that has happened and it can, especially right now, because people are like overbooked and there's waiting lists to see people and they're just trying to see people. So referring out to higher levels of care is a reason, or I've had patients who are just stagnant and I'll bring up the idea that like, Hey, maybe we should try to see somebody different. And usually they're fine with it. Okay. All that being said, even when I do that and we appropriately talk about it or we try to refer out, even and I've had patients, just a few, probably like a handful, refuse to go to a higher level of care or all of a sudden they're like, I won't lie anymore. Oh. And I'm like, no, you need to see somebody different or this isn't working, you know, or you just keep lying or you've been aggressive towards me or whatever. Even then, I still give them, I don't know, at least a month, but usually like two or three months to transition over into seeing someone else, to not allow for that transition and to abruptly stop and not see you again is extremely unethical and is what is known as patient abandonment. Now, I know it's hard to, I had a patient actually file a claim against her old therapist for the same thing. It's really hard to prove. But because it was telehealth, you might actually have some like emails and some texts or something maybe that could prove it. Um, 
Yeah, because you do have and those psychology today links like you have to offer three referrals, but you have to know or at least ethically, um, you have to know that they're taking new patients. I always call these people first. Usually I refer out to people I already know. And if I don't know, I call and I check. Sometimes they'll even say on their website if they're taking new patients or on their voicemail. You have to call and make sure they're taking new patients. And I always give my patients these options like, hey, I like her or him because of this, that or the other. I like this person because this is their the type of treatment they do. You know, you have your whole shtick. You, you have to figure it out, make sure it's a good fit. Like one of my patients was super stagnant with me. I referred her out to a colleague of mine who does like attachment based work or my do- friend, Dr. Alex Altman does EMDR and others, you know, there you have different people that you know that you can refer out to because like I have great um, resources for my uh, people who have addiction issues because I don't personally work with addiction very often. I'm not always the best fit, right? And so I have my people and your therapist should have fucking had some people. And that's very unethical and is what is known as patient abandonment. And I'm so, so, so sorry you had to deal with that. Um, I can't explain what happened other than the fact that it's not okay. And you had every right to feel upset and to feel abandoned and attachment or no attachment. That's just not appropriate. There's a reason it felt shitty. It was shitty. And that's just not. And you were so good asking for extra time for transitions and all that. Mm. That's what we're supposed to do. Okay. I hope, um, I hope you're able to tell your new therapist about this. I don't know if you have. I'm trying to look through your question again. I don't think it says if you've talked to her about it or not. But I would definitely tell her. Instead of telling her. Instead of worrying about sharing things and trusting her, explain to her what happened to you and that that's making it hard for you to trust again in therapy. And that's what I would work on. That's how we work through it. That's how we move past it. And it sounds like it love that your therapist has been clear about circumstances for hospitalization. I'm always really crystal clear with my patients. The, you know, no notice or support. She's assured you should won't walk away, you know, um, and isn't too risk adverse. Tell her about what happened, just like you told me, and tell her you really are struggling to get past this and to trust her and you really want to. And let her take it from there. Okay? Again, I'm so sorry you had such a shitty therapist. You can file a claim against her license if you if you so desire. No pressure to because it can be hard and stressful and nobody needs that. But just so you know, you could do that. Okay, final question. Question number 10. It says, Katie, where is the line between mental illness and choice? We can't choose what happens to us, but we are reminded over and over that we can choose how we respond to what happens to us, that we can choose our attitude and choose our behaviors. If this is true, then isn't my mental illness a choice? Isn't it my own fault if I am unwell? No. I have no good reasons to feel the way that I feel. I've had an easy life. The pandemic was, has wreaked havoc on so many people's lives, but I've done very well financially. My job was only mildly affected. In fact, I actually received two raises and a bonus over the past couple of years. And I live in a nice apartment in a reasonably safe area. My car runs well and it's paid off. I never have to worry about having a place to live or clothes to wear or food to eat or anything like that. I may want help, but I don't need help. And I certainly don't deserve it. My life is too easy. There are so many people out there who have to deal with so many real struggles. And there are so few people in the mental health profession to meet the needs of everyone who who seeks help. And those who are in the profession are burning out because of the need has become so great. It wouldn't be fair for me to seek help for self-created problems, especially when so many people have a greater need. I hear you. But just so you know, 
Mental illnesses are not a choice. Saying a mental illness is a choice is akin to saying that cancer is a choice. And here's why. And you can do some research if you don't believe me. You can dig up any any articles about what causes depression, what causes anxiety, what causes BPD, what causes uh, OCD, any of these things. Because by and large, our mental illnesses are caused by one or both of two things, okay? So either both of these or just one. These two things are our brains are different, meaning my patients with ADHD are lacking some dopamine and lacking a lot of what are known as dopamine transporters, meaning even if we have the dopamine, it's not getting to our prefrontal cortex like it needs to. That's where it needs to go sometimes and it doesn't get there and then we don't feel rewarded and then things are boring and then we can't focus and we keep looking for more. My autistic folks, our brain works differently. My depressed folks, our brain works differently. My people with addiction issues, our brain works differently. We talk about chemical imbalances and that's not really what happens when we're depressed or anxious. It's just the best layman's term they for some reason have come up with essentially different parts of our brain don't light up or do light up depending on what mental illness we have we have higher levels of certain hormones neurotransmitters and what's another i'm trying to think of uh there's another one but i can't think of it i'm gonna keep moving on we have a different levels of things in our brains than other people higher or lower people with schizophrenia have really high levels of dopamine too much you could say serotonin also People with depression have like not enough, right? It's all over the place. People who have addiction issues, it's a disease and the reward center in their brain, you should see it. It's so overactive around, uh, I want to say, is it enlarged? I think that part's enlarged and I forget the other part that's not. But anyway, I'm just, I don't want to get into the nitty gritty of it because I'm going to miss out on some of the, the details and I don't want to lead any of you astray. But I want you to know that mental illnesses are not a choice. They're the, akin to getting cancer or getting the flu or anything like that. Sometimes things just work differently. It's like, well, some you know, some of your friends, their elbow can like bend inward a little bit. They can hyperextend it, I think that's called. Some people can do it. Some people can't. Some people have depression. Some people don't. Now, yes, there are situations that can create it. So then moving on to the second. So number one was brains work differently number two is trauma all of us i would estimate 99 percent have had some traumatizing i mean we all went through the pandemic and for most of us it was pretty fucking terrifying so i i would estimate all of us have been traumatized we just always minimize and invalidate or don't remember situations as to be as terrifying as they were we've all had a trauma some of us have had multiple traumas and mental illnesses come out of that because we don't know how to cope. It can actually affect our nervous system and our inability to get out of the freeze state, right? Dissociation, stuff like that. Though, again, not a choice. We don't choose to be traumatized. Things happen to us and we don't have control over other people. So I say all that to tell you that just because your life on paper seems hunky-dory, right? We make enough money. We have a good house and a car, those are all just things. That doesn't mean that we feel any better. That doesn't mean that our life is good. That doesn't mean that our relationships are fulfilling. We feel good about who we are. We feel motivated to do other things. It doesn't mean any of that, that we don't be depressed. We don't feel depressed or anxious or anything. We can still have a mental illness and not be 
a homeless person on the street. Just because someone else has it worse doesn't mean there's not enough for us. It's not like pie. It's not like uh, getting therapeutic support is like pie and there's only so much to go around. I know that you're thinking like, well, yeah, because there's a limited amount of hours with mental health professionals, but you can't tell me that you might not leave that session and be like, I'm not going to take that hour from that therapist. And someone just like you gets that session too. You can't compare ourselves to other people and think that other people are more, uh, more deserving of the care. We all deserve care. And if you have the ability to access it, I encourage you to please, please access it. Like I've told you guys, I have been in and out of therapy since I was 15. Yes, I've been in Texas for a little over a year. I'm in the process of finding a therapist. I will, and I will take my hour and I will use it to help me feel better, right? And you get to take your hour and use it too. That's what we're here for. And I'll be also be honest from a random like logistical, this thought just popped into my head kind of therapist view. Therapists take a variety of patients because otherwise we burn out. Like I don't take only eating disorder patients or only self-injury patients or BPD patients or anything like that. I take a variety. I take probably like four or five of that type because that's my specialty. However, I leave slots open for people who like I saw a patient for two months because she had a lot of test anxiety and that was what we worked on. I saw a couple for a month and a half because they were struggling with uh, empty nest syndrome because their kids had just moved out. I have seen... Um, I'm trying to think, oh, a patient who had got a new diagnosis and wanted some help processing it and understanding it so he could manage it. I see a ton of different types of patients because it helps me stay sharp and it helps keep things interesting. And it also means that I don't burn out. So it's like a balance, like heavier patients who need more care and more handholding and patients who maybe don't. Like I had a patient I saw for probably like a year, I guess, who just wanted to come and vent and there was nothing specific, but she just felt like she needed a place to go and talk about things because she had a really high power, high stress job. I helped her manage that. And then she started to feel better, saw her for a few more months and we decided to titrate down. She'd come back if she want. So you have every right. I just say that again as like a logistical from a therapist perspective. Take your hour, you deserve it. We all deserve to feel better and get the support we need. We don't have to be destitute in order to meet that and to get that. We're all deserving, okay? It's not a choice. No one would choose to feel shitty, right? No. You deserve to feel better, okay? I love you all. Thank you so much for watching, for sharing this podcast, for all of your reviews, for all of your questions and your comments. I love you all. Have a wonderful rest of your week. I'll see you next time. Bye. Thank you.